0: Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. This one's all about the pig farm killer. Oh, hello, I'm Simon, uh, the host here. What happens is Callum has put me together What is can only be described as a hefty script. My printer told me it was 17 pages as printing this out. So buckle in for a bit of a long ride today. Uh, obviously, this is one of our long episodes. We also have short episodes. There are two a week, so if you're not subscribed to this podcast or YouTube channel, however you consume The Casual Criminalist, make sure you are. I've got an empty cup of coffee. There's about half a centimetre of coffee in this cup, which is not enough to keep it going. So at some point, there's going to be an edit here while I go fill up my coffee. In a previous episode, I mentioned something about, you know, disposing of bodies with pigs. Like, that there was a movie, I think it was Snatch or one of these, uh, and people were all in the comments telling me what movie it was, and I've already subsequently forgotten, but, well, today we're talking a lot about, I think, pigs and pigs eating bodies and stuff. Actually, I have absolutely no idea, to be honest, because what happens here is Callum writes me something, 17 pages of something, and I've never read it before. So we're going to learn together. Let's just jump in. Canadians enjoy a funny reputation around the world. We know they're a bit like Americans, only milder. Sort of, I would say, one thing that always amused me, there's like a a map of the world, how like America, or an American, uh, someone from the USA sees the rest of the world, and Canada was just America's hat. (laughs) It's the same basic recipe, just with about 75% less guns, a dollop of socialized healthcare, and a sprinkle of French zest for a sophisticated flavor. But much as our Canadian friends enjoy this more sensible reputation, there's Callum, come on, It's very sensible to own a ton of guns. I don't know what you're talking about. It's very sensible to be able to purchase an AR-15 in Walmart. I don't know. You probably can't purchase an AR-15 in Walmart. I think I told the story before on Casual Criminals. I went to a Walmart in the USA and uh, you could purchase a machete for $3. That surprised me. There's plenty going on north of the border, which I'm sure they'd like to sweep under the rug. That much will be clear by the end of today's episode, because today we're exploring probably the most infamous case in Canadian history, the story of the pig farm killer. While the world has only just finished collectively trying to wrap its head around the strange story of Tiger King, the zoo owner arrested on suspicion of hiring a hitman, Canada is still processing the horrific legacy of its own hillbilly prince of crime. Just like the tragic ballad of Joe Exotic, his The story is filled to the brim with drugs, sex, money, and murder. I can't believe I I haven't seen it yet, but I haven't seen Tiger King. And I must be the only person in the world who hasn't seen this. I do have the excuse, like, and people are like, Simon, you've been inside literally for a year because of coronavirus. How have you not watched Tiger King? And I think it's mostly because while I work a lot, (laughs) and also I've got a a very young kid who uh, leaves me with less, less free time than I used to have, or would perhaps like. Surprisingly though, the Canadian case is far more extreme, and fair warning, if you happen to be eating pork mince right now, you might want to put it aside. Oh God. Oh no. (laughs) Let's jump in. The Brothers. At the center of the story are two brothers, David and Robert Picton from Port Coquitlam, from uh, not far from Vancouver, here the brothers and their sister Linda owned a pig farm, which they had inherited from their parents in the 70s. Not fancying spending the rest of their lives tending to swine, the siblings decided to sell off the land to real estate developers piece by piece, pocketing a pretty penny in the process. Yeah, because the value of land for building houses on is way more than the value of, of land for farming. Like, I vaguely have considered building a home. like, And I look at the price of land and you're like, wow, this land's super cheap. It's like, oh yeah, because you can't build on it. And then you look at some other land that is literally hundreds, if not thousands of times the price. And it's like, why is this so expensive? Oh, because it's got permission to build a large home on there. <laughs> or a series of homes. Or an estate. They started doing this in the early 1980s, when the pig industry took a massive hit. Pig and pork industry maybe. So it became more profitable to just dismantle most of the operation. It was a smart decision. One single land sale netted the siblings a cool five million Canadian dollars. In the nineteen eighties, that is a lot more than five Canadian five million Canadian dollars today. They're rich, is what we're saying. They are rich. By the mid-1990s, they had amassed millions of dollars in property as a result. The farm was still operational, but only just. David and Robert had much bigger concerns than attending to the dwindling family business. Despite being in the mid-40s, the two bachelors were massive party animals. They had a reputation in the area for their wild lifestyles, which caused plenty of friction with the law over the years. foul-mouthed David was the younger of the two. He looks a little bit like Robin Williams, if Robin Williams had gone into meth-dealing rather than comedy. Oh, it's like toothless Robin Williams. He looks like a ghost. Still, you'd have to call him the handsome brother because big bro Robert looks a bit like Moby. Hey, people say I look like Moby. <laughs> if Moby was into barbecuing roadkill rather than veganism. Callum, this is savage. <laughs> From that, someone in the comments the other day was like, don't image shame people. And I was like, What? I I just read what Callum writes and then broadcast it all over the internet and I pay Callum. So, yeah, I am kind of responsible, I suppose. I apologize. For that, we can thank his unholy monster of a mullet. Proof that you could be a paper millionaire and still look like you steal shopping trolleys for the scrap metal. How did this guy look? Moby's, like, famously bald. I guess he just really has Moby's, like, facial structure? (laughs) Robert Smith and anyone who thinks I look like Moby is just because I am bald. That is the only... It's like... The number of times I see on Twitter is like, hey, look, I found your twin. And it's just a picture of someone who looks, is just bald, wears glasses and has a beard. And I'm like, that's just a dude who's got, who's bald and has glasses and has a beard. The one I used to get, like who actually has like a similar facial structure to me is Ralph Fiennes. Like people are like, you look a bit like Ralph Fiennes. And I'm like, yeah, no, I get that one because I do look a bit like Ralph Fiennes. But these. The bald and beard thing is, is, I don't look like him. He's just got, he's just bald and bearded. Robert's misfortunes didn't end with his hairstyle. He was also known for carrying around the unbearable stench of sweat and manure. Oh, by the way, when people, I, I know I'm going on about this. I apologize. We'll get back to the story. Whenever someone says this to me, like, oh, you look like uh, Johnny Sins is another classic, just because he's bald. Um, he's a porn star, by the way, if you are unaware. Uh, and uh, any time someone says that or says I look like anyone or like Bingey with Babish, I'm like, yeah, no, 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 we're cousins. We're cousins. I just embrace it. I've got hundreds of bald cousins. This was partly because he was the one left in charge of what was left of the livestock business, which he saw to in the evenings after working low-level jobs in David's new businesses during the date. Yep, despite dressing like the head of a biker gang, David was actually a fully legitimate businessman. He had a few ventures on the go throughout the 80s and 90s, mainly a topsoil and salvage demolition operation. He was also famously paranoid, always travelling around with his trusty German shepherd by his side. The quirks? Why would you be involved in, like… I mean, topsoil and demolition doesn't sound like the most… although being a demolition person would actually be fairly awesome. But if you're super rich, do you have to do this? The quirks of the brothers can probably be traced back to their troubled upbringing. Louise Picton, the matriarch of the family, was famously harsh with them. She forced the kids to work grueling shifts on the farm from a young age. If they refused or otherwise misbehaved, they'd be hosed down as punishment. That bit of trauma might explain Robert's deep-seated aversion to showers. He likely got the brunt of all this mistreatment, as he was a slow kid. In school, he was required to attend special education classes after being held back grades. He often told his friends in later life how his parents had gifted him a calf to love and care for, only to have it slaughtered. That it... Why? Why? I mean, I don't understand. Like, I understand, like, punishing a kid, not by hosing them down. But, you know, some level of discipline is important. I'm not some, like, Montessori school person. But it's like... Why? You don't need to be cruel. (laughs) When he was feeling a bit overwhelmed from all of this awfulness, young Robert would climb inside a hollowed out pig carcass to hide, dude. Again, that probably couldn't have helped much with the stench or his, his mental well-being, to be honest. So life wasn't exactly easy growing up on the Picton pig farm. The domineering control of their mother persisted until the siblings were well into their twenties. It was then that they inherited full ownership of the business. Their father died in 1977 and their mother just two years later. With a bag of cash each and a sack of social dysfunction flung over their shoulders, the Picton kids went on to lead some pretty colorful, in italics, adult lives. The Piggy Palace Good Time Society In 1996, David and Robert decided they wanted to share some of their wealth with the community. They filed an application for their very own non-profit organization, dubbed the Piggy Palace Good Time Society. In the application, they wrote that their plan was to organize, coordinate, manage, and operate special events, functions, dances, shows, and exhibitions on behalf of service organizations, sports organizations, and other worthy groups. It just sounds like they're founding a party organization and getting some like non-profit tax advantages or something maybe it sounds lovely so what kind of charitable fundraisers were they running sports tanks charity auctions community picnics Actually, no, the philanthropic activities of the Pictons were a little more R-rated than that. We're talking drugged up raves filled with prostitutes and hell's angels, all for the good of the community, of course. If you were stupid enough to accept an invitation to one of these parties, you'd have arrived to find that the palace wasn't quite as swanky as Buckingham. The yards around the farm buildings were littered with dilapidated vehicles and piles of rubble from David's demolition and topsal business. As you passed through the front gate, you'd have spotted the charming sign hanging on it, claiming that the property was was guarded by an hiv-infected pit bull, the dog breed not the rapper i'm assuming interestingly i you can say that your dog has hiv right because this probably is a canine version of hiv but it's probably not i, I don't know this as a fact it's probably not transmissible to humans i remember i stayed in an airbnb once and the owner was like oh yeah this is our cat is really sick he's got cat aids and I'm like, one, is cat AIDS really a thing? And then he's like, I know what you're thinking. And no, you can't get cat AIDS. For, you can't get AIDS from a cat with cat AIDS. At least that's what he told me. If there are any virus people listening, <laughs> like, sounds off in the comments. Can I get cat AIDS? Can I get AIDS from a cat with AIDS? What are we doing here? Let's get back to the story. This was just a sick little joke on the part of the owners, of course, but it set a nicely menacing tone to match the parties inside. You'd then walk through the mud to a converted slaughterhouse where hundreds of revelers would regularly gather for so-called community events. It was reported that these events would often descend into violence. Crystal meth and biker gangs tend to have that effect on vi- on the vibes. One unidentified partygoer once told the Canadian television network. I've actually had to take friends to emergency rooms because they've gone to the booze can after we left the bar. My one friend looked at a girl wrong and ended up getting beat up so bad. The bouncers picked him up and were beating him more as they were throwing him out the door, throwing him on the pavement outside. I mean, that was pretty bad English, I apologize for my stumbling over my words, but we get the idea. I'm told that booze can is canuck slang for a shady or illegal bar. And they don't come much shadier than this. When the city intervenes to try and have the parties shut down on the grounds of illegal liquor sales, the brothers reaffirmed they were raising money for the community. You can't stop us having our drug and sex parties. <laughs> Think of the children. Strangely, some in the community seem to agree. Although most people complained about the rowdy parties of up to 1,700 guests, several long-term residents told the papers that the Picton brothers were hard-working and generous and donated a lot of money to charitable causes around town. That doesn't make you mean you're above the law, though, does it? I mean, you can get some slack and maybe people won't report you, you to the police. But when you get reported to the police by someone, the police can't be like, oh no, you're a good dude. You give to charity. It's like, no, you're having some sort of crazy drug party even if this made up for all the noise and substance abuse, there was some stuff going on behind the scenes, which I'm sure even the most tolerant neighbors wouldn't have approved of. ER Scene So it's clearly not all good times at the Piggy Palace. David and Robert's idea of altruism turned down to be illegally selling whiskey to bikers and sex workers, and they've drawn the irritated eye of the law as a result. But you will be amazed at how much the local police were willing to let slide. Case in point. Robert's arrest in 1997. It was no secret that the older of the two brothers was a big fan of curb crawling. I don't even know what is that. Twice a week, he would transport. Okay, we're going to find out. He would transport a truck full of waste barrels to a processing plant in the Lower East Side of Vancouver, where the employees referred to him as the Pig Man. The area is one of the most deprived in all of Canada, which for a time had worse HIV rates than North America. Drugs and prostitution were rife, making it a perfect playground for a guy like Rob. As a regular in the area, he would pick up prostitutes. Oh, does curb crawling mean, like, to pick up a prostitute? I see. Apparently, we're not supposed to call them prostitutes anymore. They're sex workers. Uh, So, come on, Callum. Get it together. And I also should know better. On other occasions, he would have his biker gang friends bring them along to parties. It takes a desperate soul to accept the invitation of a creepy, stinking, mulleted dude to come back to his slaughterhouse, which is why Robert tended to target women with crippling drug addictions. The Piggy Palace became known as a place to score an easy fix, even if it meant a pretty considerable risk to your safety. One woman who lived to regret visiting told a reporter, "...that farm was the dregs of the earth. It was a hellhole. You can say to someone, don't go, but if they are an addict, the addiction overcomes the senses. Police had known about the farm for some time, but nothing changed. One weekend in 1997, a woman, Wendy Lynn Eistetter, fell into that exact trap. She had been working as a sex worker in Vancouver's Lower East Side at the time and was struggling with substance abuse. Robert pulled up alongside her on the way back from the plants and gave her the usual offer. Drugs, party, place to sleep shook him up on his offer and hopped in the car. Back at the farm, the two slept together before the mulleted wonder started acting strange. He brought out a pair of handcuffs and forced them onto Wendy's left arm. She wisely decided to opt out of this little game and shoved Robert away. In response, he drew a knife and stabbed Wendy in the stomach. Things have escalated quickly. She was no meek little victim, though. She managed to grab the knife off her attacker and stab him right back before making a run for it. Good for her. She was found later that night by a driver on the nearby motorway. He picked her up and took her to the hospital. When she arrived, the police were already there investigating another stabbing. Quite a coincidence. As it turned out, Robert had beaten her there and was currently getting treated for his own wound in the emergency room. (laughs) Fancy seeing you here. He had told the authorities that a hitchhiker woman had tried to rob him. The police took a conflicting statement from Wendy, but she was still under the effects of the drug, so wasn't at her most coherent. This meant that they had obvious reason to question her story, but it was soon backed up with some concrete evidence. Any doubt over who initiated the tit for tat stabbings was dispelled when they found the handcuff keys in Robert's pocket. Then they fit the shackle hanging off of Wendy's wrist. Dude, come on! I know I'm always saying on the Casual Criminalist, criminals just do better. This is a good example of that. Come on. With that, Robert Picton was arrested and charged with attempted murder. The officers collected his clothes and boots as evidence. And once he recovered, they casted him off to jail. Surely it would be a pretty clear-cut case, right? It should definitely be clear-cut. This guy should go to prison when your handcuff victim rocks up to the same hospital and you have the key in your pocket you're to use the legal terminology totally screwed but unfortunately not since Wednesday was a known and addict and was hired at the time of the attack the prosecution decided that her testimony would be wouldn't be reliable enough to secure a conviction that is very unfortunate. On January 27, 1998, the charges were, is, were stayed indefinitely, Robert Picton was allowed to walk free, and the Piggy Palace parties continued on, bringing joy and prosperity to the community for years to come. Sar- sarcasm sometimes doesn't come across in text, but that was definitely sarcastic. The Piggy Palace Good Times Weapons Raid But that wasn't the end of the palace's trouble with the law. For some reason, the cops were reluctant to let these hillbilly humanitarians go about their fundraising in peace, all because of a few little stabbings and brutal beatings. In 2000, they were successful in crashing the party for good, and the Piggy Palace closed down. Even though they couldn't legally hold events there, the brothers continued to make it their base of operations. Likewise, rumors continued to circulate of strange happenings at the farm, and it never lost its dangerous reputation among the working women of Vancouver. Several visitors to the farm had started to notice some strange things which suggested that there might be something in the rumors. In 1999, a close female friend of the Pictons thought she spotted some bloody female clothing in bags behind a trailer, along with discarded aboriginal ID cards. She reported what she saw to Bill Hiscocks, a salvage worker in the employ of the Pictons, and he in turn went to the police. Why didn't you just go straight to the police? Be like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go to the guy who works for them, be like, what well, if he's in on it? He might murder me. I'd immediately just be like, let's go to the police, anonymously tip them off, whatever. That's what I would do. I don't know. Okay. Maybe there's more to this anyway. They told him that his report legally only amounted to hearsay, as it was second hand information. To get a warrant, they needed something more tangible, like the original person going to the police, for God's sake. Okay, well, if it's tangible you want, how about this? Later that year, the police received an anonymous tip telling them that a woman named Lynn Ellingson had gone to the farm and spotted the body of a woman hanging from a hook in the slaughterhouse. However, when the police went to question her, she vehemently denied seeing anything. I should add that Lynn was a struggling single mother who relied on Robert Picton to supply her with drugs. The police brought their concerns to Robert nonetheless, who agreed to let them search the farm, but the officers decided to pass. Come on, police. You have one job. It's catching criminals. This is part of it. Once again, nothing was done, even though Robert was already strongly suspected of attempting to murder a prostitute. The police just decided to leave him. To run his business. This is especially infuriating when you consider the context. It's infuriating already, Callum. I get the feeling I'm just going to be more infuriated. Around 65 women had gone missing from the red light districts of Vancouver since the late 1970s. Seriously, guys. Uh, when the authorities started properly tracking the statistics, it was especially dangerous around the Lower East Side, where we- uh, Wendy Lynn Isata had been working at the time of her ordeal. Things had only gotten worse in the 90s despite public demand for action, with dozens of women disappearing between 1995 and 2001. Despite the police's baffling inaction, at least the farm was on their radar. In the end, they finally took their opportunity to search it when an ex-employee named Scott Chubb reported seeing illegal guns on the property. The, the, The woman hanging from a hook in the slaughterhouse was not what got them to search it, it was illegal guns. All right, then. The detective who interviewed him probably tried his best to dismiss it all as hearsay so he could clock off early and go grab a beer. Standard Vancouver PD procedure. But Scott was adamant. Good. And so, warrant in hand, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, better known as the Mounties, descended on the farm on the 5th of February 2002 in their ridiculous red outfits, wielding hockey sticks, attack grizzlies on standby. Yes, I refuse to deal in anything but national stereotypes. It means a grizzly bear. (laughs) (laughs) Pictures from the day show a long line of police cars and news vans parked out front of the property. They did manage to find some illegal guns at the farm, and although both brothers were arrested, only Robert ended up with any charge against his name. It was hardly a surprise that the hillbilly party ranch had some illegal weapons. But that wasn't all the cops found. During a search of Robert's trailer, they found something which would be very interesting to the detectives working on the disappearances, a prescription inhaler with the name of one of the missing women on the side. This was enough to involve the British Columbia Missing Women Investigation, a joint venture between the Mounties and the Vancouver PD founded in 2001 to look into all the disappearances. Are the mounted police like the FBI or something? This sounds like, you know, the FBI working with the local police, like the federal agency, or whatever we call that in the uk like mi5 or scotland yard or something like that i think this was also something that was explained to me in the comments like everyone was wondering i was wondering what does scotland yard do are they the british fbi it's like i know more i swear i know more about american police because i just watched so many like um- there's so many american cop shows the task force had a lot of cases on their plate by this point, most of them women who barely existed to normal society and whose disappearances had gone largely unheralded, save for the grief of a few family members. As a clearer picture of what was going on at the farm for all those years emerged, any hope they still had for a happy reunion with their loved ones was about to be shattered. I mean, one, I wouldn't hold on to a ton of hope. The full search. For the moment, the brothers were free to go after posting bail for Robert's weapons charges. He was kept under close police surveillance, probably on account of the stabbing in guns and missing women's stuff. The farm was now cordoned off as a crime scene, meaning all the pig man could do was go about his days, knowing full well what the police were about to discover. The search began on the 6th of February, just one day after the firearms raid. The federal agents handed over control to their colleagues on the Project Even-Handed Task Force, who picked apart every inch of the farm for clues. The picture they were painting would soon turn into something straight out of a horror film. Their discovery started with a pair of ID cards belonging to two of the missing women. These were found in Robert's trailer, alongside used syringes containing a mysterious blue substance. There were also pieces of clothing, jewelry, and makeup strewn around. DNA testing would take some time, but it was safe to assume that these were not the property of the subject. And Bessie had a fledgling drag career that slips the attention of the law. The hillbilly drag queen theory was thoroughly debunked with the next discovery. In a freezer located in Robert's workshop, officers found the severed heads, hands and feet of two women. These were Serena Abosway and Mona Wilson. Their killer had barely even tried to hide the crimes. I don't understand this, criminals. Like The police are closing in. I mean. I I know destroying evidence is a crime and all that, but dude, finding a head in the freezer? I mean, that is like the worst case scenario. (laughs) On the 22nd of February, Robert Picton was once again arrested and charged with two counts of murder in the first degree. He was carted off to jail and held without bail while the police went about establishing the extent of his crimes. There were plenty of questions left unanswered by the preliminary search, after all. Well, like, why are there heads in your freezer? One which stands out is the mystery of the dildo gun. Oh my. Yes, you heard that correctly. Why, we must wonder, did the authorities find a 22 caliber revolver with a dildo fastened over the barrel and one round shot right through it? Picton would later claim that, like a deranged X-rated Matlock, he had improvised the device as a makeshift silencer. Cracking idea for the next Bond movie if any screenwriters happened to be listening. More importantly, though, in trying to ascertain just how many victims they should be looking for at the farm, the police cooked up a clever scheme. They would send an undercover detective into jail to share a cell with Picton and see if he would give up any details. Given what we know about the killer's personal hygiene, I hope the officer got a knighted for his bravery. As we mentioned before, Robert wasn't the brightest. His brother described him as overly trusting and gullible, so the police's gambit it worked like a charm. He gladly shared details of his crimes with his new roommate, even getting a kick out of being the center of attention. You're a bit of a dim dim, aren't you, mate? Robert gleefully told stories behind his murder souvenirs, which helped in identifying some of the victims. In his mind, he was set to become a big celebrity when the news broke. His only regret was that he got sloppy with his crimes, and never got to cap off his kill count at a nice round number. As for the total number of murders he did manage to commit, Robert boasted, "'I got a murder charge on me, and 48 more. 48 more to come, whoopee.'" This got horrific. Excavations Now the challenge for investigators was to find the physical evidence to make sure every one of those murder charges could be slapped on the slack-jawed slaughterer. Yes, I've given him another nickname. They dug up the yards, raked through all of the rooms, and even dismantled the buildings. Personal effects from dozens more victims turned up along the way. Conveyor belts and other machinery were brought in to help sort through the dirt and the piles of rubble left from the salvage business. All in all, a total of 383,000 cubic feet was sifted through in search of evidence, and the farm became the largest crime scene in Canadian history. I'd also be surprised if it didn't turn up the most individual fragments of evidence, too. All in all, there were 600,000 separate exhibits and 200,000 DNA samples. This was mainly because Picton hadn't buried his victim's hole. It's thought that he dismembered the bodies before forcing the pieces through a meat grinder and throwing whatever was left to the pigs. Amazingly, that's not the most appalling part. Dude, how much worse does this can this possibly be in 2004 investigators reported that some of the ground human remains may have even been sold to the public mixed in with pork oh god i don't want to i was planning on having burgers tonight not anymore oh no i'm supposed to give content warning before stuff like that my bad i to be to be fair you're listening to a podcast called the casual criminalist in the true crime section i think you know what you're in for once the samples were recovered, the hard part began. Forensic anthropologists were faced with the task of sorting through all those thousands of small pieces of bone, hair, and teeth to try and determine exactly who they belonged to. It was no easy task, as some of the samples were heavily decomposed due to both the time they had been left in there and the method of disposal. Some were more intact, though, and provide a deeper insight into Robert's sick methods. He had cut apart some victims' skulls and placed their hands and feet inside. Dude. The families of the women who had gone missing from Vancouver were asked to provide DNA samples to make the process easier. However, some of the women sadly had no relations to contact. A forensic toxicologist was able to ascertain that many of the victims had been using drugs when they died, both prescription and illicit. This was backed up by the needles and other drug paraphernalia in Robert's trailer. This process ran all the way through until November. With each new positive identification, Robert was hit with another round of murder charges. On the 2nd of April, he was charged with the deaths of and McDonald, Heather Bottomley, and Diane Rock. On the 9th, Andrea Joesbury and Brenda Wolfe the day after. In September, Georgina Papin, Patricia Johnson, Helen Hallmark, Jennifer Firminger. In October, Tanya Hulk, Sherry Irvin, Inga Hall and Heather Chinook. These were the 15 victims the robber was officially charged with by the end of 2002. Not quite the full 49 he claimed to have killed, but it was a start. It was around this time that Lynn Ellingson came forward to reveal that actually she had seen that body hanging in the slaughterhouse back in 1999, and now she wanted to tell the truth. We hope someone gave her a medal. Had she come forward sooner, or the police had just gone ahead and searched the damn farm, ten women's lives would have been saved. This is a recurring theme on Casual Criminalist, where people, witnesses, police don't take some action and then just these horrific crimes continue, and it's always… like, come on. Another blast from the past came when officers re-examined the small matter of Robert's botched murder from 1998. As I mentioned, his clothing and boots from that day were seized, and when they were recovered from storage in 2004, forensic analysts were actually able to match samples found on them to two more missing women. These joined the fresh batch of charges laid against Picton in 2005 for the murders of Andrea Borhaben, Marie Frey, Tiffany Drew, Cara Ellis, Debra Lynn Jones, Kerry Kosky, Sarah DeVries, Angela Jardine, Wendy Crawford, Cynthia Felix, and Diane Melnick, and one final unidentified woman. The total number of murder charges now sat at 27. Although police were fully convinced that he had been speaking truthfully about his 49 total victims, they were unable to find any conclusive evidence for the rest. They had already spent over $70 million just to get this far. It's thought that his murderous career might have stretched back decades, however, all of the confirmed cases occurred between 1995 and 2001. They might not have managed to prove everything they had wanted, but even one of these charges would have been enough to let prosecutors pursue the maximum possible sentence. With 27 to go on, they prepared to prosecute the pig farm killer. The trial The court case began at the Supreme Court of British Columbia on the 30th of January 2006. Robert Picton entered a not guilty plea for every one of the 27 charges against him, meaning the whole thing would go to trial the following year. In case you're not familiar with this whole crime and punishment thing, 27 murders is actually quite a lot. Had all the charges been heard in the same trial, the jury would have set aside their own lives for about two years just to take part. And it's not like in courtroom TV dramas. Real jury duty is filled with so much tedium that two years of it would drive any reasonable person insane. It's also, like, massively disruptive to your life. Like, if, someone, if I was like called to jury duty, fortunately where I live they don't have juries. Like which I mean i don 't know, I, I kind of like the idea of being trialed by your peers, but here uh, I live in the Czech Republic, and everything 's just done by judges, so you don 't have jury duty, which is convenient, not that i 'd be a very good jurist because my Czech is not that great so over the course of two thousand and six, the judge went about whittling down the charges and evidence into a more manageable package. In the end, it was decided that the first trial would go ahead with only the six strongest charges. The case of the unidentified Jane Doe was even thrown out entirely. The remaining six charges were the murders of Wilson, Abbotsway, Papin, Wolfe, Frey, and Joesbury. When the main part of the trial began on January the 22nd, 2007, the jury heard how Picton had lured each of these women into his trailer, offering them heroin and other drugs, before ending their lives and brutally disposing of their bodies. We already know that he used a knife to kill some of his victims, but during the trial some witnesses revealed more horrific details of his murder methods. Scott Chubb, the guy who called the police about the illegal guns, had once gotten an unsolicited murder tip from his boss. Robert told him that one of the easiest ways to kill a drug-addicted prostitute is to inject window shield washer into her veins. That explained the blue substance in the syringes. Another witness revealed how Picton had bragged about strangling his victims to death. He would bind them, kill them, and then process them, just like he was taught to do with livestock. This meant draining the blood from the bodies, removing the organs, and dumping the remains into the pig pens. Why are these people not like if some dude came up to me and was like hey mate um you know I've got some experience in killing people and I just thought I'd give you some tips on how to get rid of them I'd be like go to the police I'm going to the police are you are you not what the molested maniac's tongue had clearly loosened up over the years, as he grew more confident in his crimes. His behaviors had likewise changed over the years. Picton had grown progressively more bold as his killing career matured, on- with only one confirmed murder in 1995 and seven in 2001. These were all just allegations at this point, of course, but surely a conviction was inevitable, right? When Callum uses the right question mark thing in his scripts, I'm always, I always brace myself for disappointment, but this guy murdered dozens of people, he's going to jail, and if they had death penalty in Canada, which I'm almost certain they don't, he would be getting the death penalty. Well, on the 9th of December 2007, the jury returned their verdict, not guilty of first-degree murder, but 100% guilty of second-degree murder. I had you go in there for a second. For those un- unclear on the law, the difference between these two types of murder is intent. If you plan to kill someone in advance, or do so as part of another crime like kidnapping, that counts as first-degree murder in Canada. Well… wait… he… intended to kill them? That is not without doubt and he did it as part of another crime drug use and or soliciting prostitution no if you intentionally kill someone on the spur of the moment that's second degree that's not what's going on here is it surely given everything i've said so far the jury must have made a mistake i mean if the guy boasted to his mates about his favorite murder methods you have to assume a fair bit of premeditation went into the crimes especially when you've done it a second time you know what's going down But remember, Picton wasn't short of pocket change. He had enough to get a decent legal team on his side. His defense went about picking apart the prosecution's evidence by portraying poor Robert as a slow-witted simpleton, manipulated into his confession by the nasty police. It's what I like to call the Forrest Gump defense. His lead counsel, Adrian Brooks, repeated during the closing arguments that Robert wasn't the sharpest tool in the slaughterhouse. A series of witnesses had been called to prove as much, with the aim being to discredit the confession of Robert himself so let's just go on the numerous bits of evidence one of his neighbors testified that he was kind of a hilly billy type half backward and not as intelligent as the most of us his own ex-sister in law told the court that he would often struggle to keep up with the jokes and complex conversations brooks laid into his client's intelligence again and again before claiming that the video evidence of his jailhouse confessions couldn't be trusted to paraphrase johnny cochran if the man's a dimwit you must acquit that makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, if he's of a mental capacity where he can't stand trial, yes, sure, he's of a mental capacity that he can't stand trial, but this guy's just dumb. Dumb people commit crimes all the time. I'd say dumb people commit more crimes. Using a poster board, he showed links between what Picton was told by investigators the day of his arrest and what he said in the cell the day after. There were some stark similarities which the defense claimed was evidence that this simple little hillbilly boy was just parroting back what he had been accused of by the detectives. Apparently, he was so worried about his farm and his family that the mulleted maniac was willing to confess to anything just to make the investigation go away. The poor dear. So, if that were the case, what did they have to say about all the human remains? When you boil it down, they were basically saying that on a busy farm like that, a man like Robert Picton couldn't have done it all alone. He was taking the heat for one or more accomplices, who may even have pressured him into participating or taking the blame. All of this defense is well and good, right? But he's killed a lot of people for second-degree murder, right? So, I mean, they're not going to have those prison sentences served concurrently they're going to be consecutive so even if he gets a few years for each one he's going away forever so why this defense unless the the punishments for second degree murder can be served con- co- consecutively in uh, concurrently in canada or something like that but really i mean jail forever It was enough to convince the jury to downgrade the murder conviction to second-degree murder, but the judge still seemed pretty convinced of Picton's maliciousness. He handed out a fittingly harsh sentence, life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. That's the absolute maximum penalty possible under Canadian law. Over the next few years, Picton's defense team would raise appeals all the way up to the Canadian Supreme Court, but none of them were successful. Wow, so they really do have to bundle all of them together and he can get 25 years and then he can get parole, which is wildly an under-punishment, in my opinion. As for the other murder charges left hanging, they were eventually abandoned. It was ruled that pursuing them to trial was unnecessary, since any convictions wouldn't result in an increase in Robert's sentence. Many of the families were understandably outraged, and you have to wonder, if his victims had been from less-deprived backgrounds, would their deaths have gone unanswered like that? I think it's very likely that they would have uh, caught him sooner. How the Police Failed the Victims I'd say it's a fair enough assumption, given how much the police had already failed the victims by this point. Vancouver Deputy Police Chief Doug Lepard issued a public apology for the time it took to catch on to the goings-on at the Piggy Palace. He said, I wish that the several agencies involved that we could have done it better in so many ways, and I wish that more lives would have been saved. So on my behalf, and behalf of the Vancouver Police Department, and all the men and women that worked on the investigation, I would say to the families, how sorry we all are for your losses and because we did not catch this monster sooner. Now it's all well and good, Doug. But come on, it was staring you right in the face so many times. And I don't mean to be rude, but I had the guy pinned as a serial killer the moment I saw a picture of him. Callum. You can't just be like you're a serial killer because you look like a weirdo. How did the police fail to follow up a stabbing and reports of women hanging in the slaughterhouse? It's a bloody good question. Well, as I mentioned before, many of the women who had gone missing were Indigenous Canadians and most were working as prostitutes. They were already fairly invisible to society even before they went missing. One woman named Sherry Rail wasn't even reported missing until three years after her disappearance in 1984. Ever since 1991, the people of Vancouver had been demanding the police do more to combat their disappearances, starting with the first annual Women's Day Memorial March. The police had disbanded their first task force to combat the issue back in 1989, and now they basically just told the angry public that there was no evidence of foul play and that the women probably just moved on elsewhere. When many of the missing women were alone in the world, it was a hard thing to disprove. When Pigson ramped up his criminal activities in the nineties, rumours floated around among the Lower East Side sex workers of a serial killer on the loose. The women took it upon themselves to organize into pairs and pass along warnings about violent clients. Even when they were victimized, they rarely trusted the police enough to report the assaults and robberies that they regularly endured. Their problems this is just this is a huge failure on the part of the police. Their problems in receiving adequate care and respect from the authorities didn't stop with death either. The family of Georgia Papp and First Nations Canadians told the papers that the Victim Services Department discriminated against them, denying them meal and bus tickets during the trial. The worst part was that they weren't informed they'd be hearing a traumatic play-by-play account of Georgina's death until they were already entering the courtroom. Later, the family of Kara Ellis revealed how they had only been given part of her remains and they would chase after the authorities for three years to get the rest. If you think this all sounds completely awful, you're not alone. Two separate inquiries were set up in response to the case. In 2016, the national government issued an investigation into the treatment of missing person cases involving indigenous women and girls. Four years earlier, the British Columbian regional government found that their police force's prejudice against sex workers had led to a tragedy of epic proportions. Yeah, that would be a fair way to describe it, guys. They set up a separate branch of the police force dedicated to missing persons cases as a result. The appalling irony of the whole thing is that, on account of their marginalized lives, these women's words couldn't be trusted as evidence in court, but their bones could. If you were an at-risk woman working on the Lower East Side, the only chance you really had of having your story heard was if it had already come to an end. Did the Others Know? But we cannot end on that. I don't want you walking yet, yeah, Callum. There's a bunch more pages. I don't want you walking around weeping for the rest of the day. How about a bit of conspiracy theory to take the edge off? You like conspiracy theories, don't you? Of course you do. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't love a good conspiracy theory, even if it's just a on it. For this one, let's circle back to something said by Robert's defense lawyer. It does seem a little bit strange that the remains of 27 women could be scattered around a busy farm without anyone being involved. This was the hub of David's business as well. After all, both brothers lived there. Despite being the older brother, Robert was largely subservient to David. Dave was the brighter of the two, and he mostly ordered his big brother around. As Audrey Stebenok, the court witness who called Robert a hillbilly, said of the family business, "Willie was the worker or slave kind of thing and Dave was the boss. Some friends of the two even said the younger brother dictated when the slack-jawed slasher went to bed. Despite all of that, David wasn't even called to testify a trial, which seems extremely strange. Several of the victim's families asserted that there was no way he could have been ignorant to what his brother was up to. As a result, nine families launched lawsuits against Robert Picton in 2013, and seven of those lawsuits also mentioned David as a co-defendant, with some throwing blame towards their sister Linda too, although she lived miles away. Around the same time David was reportedly spotted driving around the Lower East Side and women there started spreading the word at the local homeless shelters and drug clinics. Warning flyers were posted on the walls reporting that the brother of a serial killer was trying to pick up women. The man himself argues that there's no way he could pick up a streetwalker even if he wanted to because his German shepherd hates strangers and wouldn't stand for it. That is that is a flimsy ass excuse. But David was no stranger to violence against women, Those who bit of digging into his background shows as much. In 1992, he was convicted of sexually assaulting a co-worker on a building site. He cornered the woman in a trailer and groped her, before being interrupted when someone else entered. He allegedly threatened to rape and kill her if she told anyone about it. David was only fined $1,000 and served 30 days probation as a result of the assault, a slap on the wrist, basically. He was ordered to refrain from contacting the victim, and so she never saw him again until about 10 years later when his face popped up in the news. This triggered a panic attack. The woman threw up and impulsively bleached her house before going to the hospital. In 2015, she won her own lawsuit for psychological trauma, receiving $45,000 in damages. It doesn't paint a particularly pretty picture of the Hells Angel wannabe, and there's one final detail of the story that sounds eerily similar to much of what we've heard today. The woman revealed how, shortly after filing her original police report, one of Picton's work buddies threatened that she'd be cut into pieces if she stayed in town. Now for the part where I spray my lawyer repellent into the air because I'm coming close to accusing a man who's not been found guilty of court, so all of this is absolutely alleged. 100% allegedly, none of this has been proven. It's just wild speculation. With that out of the way, I mean… Come on. His mentally challenged brother murders 27 women right under his nose, and David doesn't notice a single thing. He never goes into the brother's trailer and sees all the handbags and ID cards, never wanders into the workshop to grab a beer out of the dismembered head freezer, he never asks about the dildo gun. It's a stretch, isn't it? It really is, allegedly. I won't bother speculating on exactly who might have been involved and how. I'm sure you're quite capable of filling in those blanks by yourself and also… don't want to be sued. (laughs) Suffice for me to say, it seems very unlikely that Robert was the only one who knew about his crimes, and I'm far from the first person to suggest this. Bill Hiscox, the former employee of David, is one of the biggest proponents of the theory, and even goes so far as to suggest a cover-up including local police officers and officials. Wow, that is extreme. It stems from the fact that, according to Bill, the police turned down his offer to blow the lid off the case too easily. He told a reporter in 2012, I was willing to go inside. I was more than willing, and more than happy, to do whatever it took to stop this guy. I went as far to suggest as they put a wire on me. But the police decided against it. When Officer Laurie Stenner was quizzed on the situation, she claimed that Hiscox was unwilling to go undercover for them because he himself was a recovering addict. He still asserts that's completely false, and that the officer just cut off contact with him for no reason citing false claims of harassing Officer Schenner. So why does he think the police would want to intentionally botch the investigation? Well, apparently the Hells Angel gang connection was more significant than many thought. Some even claim that David Picton himself was a member and that the body of a murdered gangster was hidden on his property. Again, some claim, all alleged, nothing proven. Speculation in the wildest degree. In the version of events hinted at by Hiscrox, the money and influence of the gang meant that the Piggy Palace and its owners might have had a bit more power around town than anyone thought, enough that the goings-on there were intentionally allowed to let slide. It's an interesting theory, but we've really slipped too far into speculation, and I promised I wouldn't do that. It's probably just enough to state that it seems unlikely that Robert's crimes went undetected by all of his associates, and if David really was just turning a blind eye, it might not be the first time that he's seen a mem- family member End someone's life. Ooh. One last bonus murder. Oh, do we have There's so much killing already, Callum. There's one more tragic page. Actually, there are three. Uh from the Picton Family scrapbook. Okay, to take a peek at before we finish up today, this one takes us all the way back to the 1960s, an origin story for one of today's miserable miscreants, which gives us another window into the troubled upbringing of the Picton kids. Writing for the Toronto Star in 2007, journalist Steve Cameron went digging into some of the rumors which had sprung up around his troubled family over the years. The story at the centerpiece of her article was sourced from one of Robert's close friends, who confided to him in the 1990s. On the 16th of October 1967, David Pickton had just got his driver's license and decided to take his father's truck out for an evening drive. While driving around a road not far from the farm, he accidentally ran over one of his neighbors, Tim Barrett, a 14-year-old boy. David rushed home to tell his mother, who went back to the scene with him. Rather than call an ambulance, uh, guys, she apparently decided it would be better for the family just to dispose of the kid, And so, and she then shoved and agonized him into a ditch about 10 feet from the side of the road and just left him there. Dave was left to try and cover up what had happened, taking the car to a mechanic to get the damage to the front end repaired. It wasn't until the next day that Tim was found. A neighbor had seen him walking down the road earlier on and offered to help his parents search along it. It was his father who found the body. His son had drowned in the water at the bottom. This is horrific. He drowned in the water at the bottom of the ditch. His other injuries were severe but not fatal: a fractured skull, broken pelvis, and cranial hemorrhage. If he had been taken to hospital, he would have likely made a full recovery. David's juvenile record is sealed, so we don't know if he ever received punishment for his role in the death of Tim Barrett. Louise Picton faced none, as nobody could prove that she had moved the boy into the water. Still, it became common knowledge around the neighborhood that she had some part in the death. Wait, so how do we know? We don't know. Okay, speculation. If the story's true, it seems like the criminal credentials of, Picton, of the Picton clan predate Robert and David. If the latter really was roped into the first his first murderous cover-up so young, maybe a turning a blind eye to his brother's deeds would have been so difficult after all. Allegedly. That concludes today's field trip to America's friendly northern neighbor. <laughs> After all that we really call it friendly, Caleb. It started with a horrific tale of how Robert Picton killed and dismembered up to 49 victims before feeding their remains to his pigs, and ended up a profile of one of the most morally questionable clans in Canadian criminal history. Now the worst of them is thankfully behind bars, and the farm where he played out his horror movie murders has been paved over. A strip mall now stands in its place. It's depressing that Robert was able to continue his reign of terror for so long without being captured. You can believe that it was the result of a cover-up if you want, but the likelihood is that the whole shambles was the result of the same old social problem that rears its ugly head time and time again. Extremely vulnerable people not being afforded the protections that they desperately need. Picton took advantage of the anonymity of his victims, counting on the fact that nobody, not even their families, the police, nor a passerby, would give a damn about what he did to them. Sadly, he was right. Time and time again, the police failed to treat the violence against these women with proper urgency and gravity, and more died because of it. Other than that, the only other takeaway from today is that the next time you get invited to some smelly hillbilly slaughterhouse, do the sensible thing go grab a few drinks, do a bit of networking, or, you know, stay as far away as possible. Your choice. Dismembered appendices. Despite apparently having limited mental capacities, Robert Picton is a published author. The book was released in 2016, entitled Picton in His Own Words. It said that he managed to send the manuscript to an associate in California who had it published. You'll struggle to find a copy now, though, an online petition gained almost 58,000 signatures, causing Amazon and the publisher to drop Picton's grammatically questionable debut. Good. Number 2. The police botched more than just the initial investigation into Picton when transcripts of the undercover jail cell conversations were released in 2010, they forgot to censor the officer's name several times. He thankfully never faced any retribution from the Pictons or their Hells Angels buds, but I'm sure he got sweaty palms whenever he heard a Harley Davidson coming up the street for a few years after, you can bet. The family's victims weren't the only ones launching lawsuits. In 2009, the two non-incarcerated Picton kids filed a suit against the RCMP, claiming that they had disturbed, disrupted, killed, and destroyed the various plants, trees, ground covers, and other vegetation and fish in the ponds. I mean, yes, it's a shame for the plants, plants, but your brother did bury 27 human heads under them, so yeah, Jesus. This has been a long, felt long. It's not actually that long, less than an hour episode of The Casual Criminalist. I do hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, Callum, for putting it all together. I never thank Jen, but Jen makes the, the magical graphics and the music that you hear uh, if you're listening or watching, that sort of stuff. If you like the show, please do leave a review if you're watching as a podcast. Make sure you subscribe, uh, leave a review if you're listening as a podcast, uh, leave a like if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, subscribe if you're on, on both platforms, that is possible. So Please do that. And thank you, for, thank you for watching. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death